0: This is the Mentors for Military podcast. So, welcome everyone. I'm Robert Gown, and I'm joined by Scott Johnson on this episode of Mentors for Military. For those of you uh, who enjoy our podcast, please head over to Patreon—that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com—to show your support for the podcast by making a donation. We'd really appreciate any size donation. It helps us keep this thing going. In addition to all of our social media sites under Mentors4MIL, we share additional content on our LinkedIn page and our closed Mentors for Military Team group page on Facebook. Be sure to follow us at those locations if you're interested in a growth mindset. We love giving back to the community, so when you purchase a pair of skeleton Optics sunglasses and use the code Mentors4MIL to save 10%, skeleton Optics will then help us donate that 10% to a charity supporting veterans or their families. So go visit Optics at SkeltonOptics.com and make sure to use that Mentors the Number 4 MIL code. We're taping this show on September 11th, so we want to show our respect for those who lost their lives during these tragic events of that day and to their families by pausing for just a moment of silence. On this episode, we are joined by the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, The CEO Next Door. Elena Botello is a senior partner at GH Smart. She has supported first-time CEOs and CEO transitions for over 15 years, ranging from Fortune 50 to middle market companies across a wide range of industry sectors, including services, technology, healthcare, financial services, manufacturing, consumer products, She supports major corporate and alternative investment clients globally, including Pfizer, IBM, CHOP, Carlyle Group, CenterBridge, Berkshire, Tiger Global, and many others. We can't wait to dive into the data behind the CEO next door. By the way, Elena, I have highlighted so much of my personal copy of my book. I think the pages are probably more yellow than white, and I'm having difficulty trying to read them. Thankfully, it doesn't bleed in too often. But thank you, Elena, for joining us on the Mentors for Military podcast.
1: Robert Scott thank you for having me and you know that's the best compliment for an author is to have the the, the the book being dog-eared and highlighted.
0: It's both. you got me all figured out.
1: (laughs) You know, whenever I sit in the reception just waiting for one of my CEO clients to, you know, to be ready for a conversation, I always see these really fancy books on their coffee tables, and I always look at it and make sure mine is not among them, because I always aspire for my book to be, like, wrinkled up and on their desk or in their briefcase, Uh, and so far, so good. So, thank
0: you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and I actually thought about taking the cover off, just so that I wouldn't damage it too much, because I was shoving it in Inside my briefcase <laughs> pulling it out i'm i'm showing it to people and you know one
1: of the ceos um came up to me on a presentation i did and he said you know what i did Um, he if you notice at the end of every chapter there are practical tips yes and so he literally took the time he created a separate like workbook for himself of like i'm sure he had someone do it for him but they photocopied all of those tips and so apparently there's like now a black market for the for the tips from the book
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great idea for you though because as i was reading through this i had written a book a long time ago called master the transition and did the exact same thing at the end of the chapter to try to take away so it was fascinating when i opened it up and I started seeing that at the end of it because it helped you like regroup, rethink. And then I can totally see now a training type of thing where people really can focus on specific things that they need to correct as leaders. So, and we'll get into some of those things, but I could totally see a workbook coming out of this, Elena. It looks like that's <laughs> the next step. Like I mentioned to you prior to the podcast, Elena, this book resonated to me on so many different levels, mainly because when I'm not hosting the podcast, um, I'm out consulting with CEOs and executives in several different industries about how to um, add value to their own organization and talk a lot about the importance of getting the right who so that you can then drive the what. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's a lot of of course what your book is describing in in a couple different dog ears and highlights that I put within there and then it also goes back to Jim Collins Good to Great which uh, I want to kind of uh, expand on a few things that were very similar into your findings and what Jim Collins talked about in that book as well but Mm -hmm. first it might be really helpful for people who might not be too familiar with you although I gave you a little bit of an intro there to give a a past history of yourself and how it is that you came to be a co-author of this book
1: you know, it's, it's a funny story. A few years back, um, when we were still in the thick in the process of working on the book, uh, I was vacationing with um, a family friend who's known me since before I was born. It's my parents' friend, actually. And as only those people who've known you your whole life can say, she looked at me and she said, OK, so I understand why it's a good idea to write a book. What makes you think you can write a book?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's an honest, yeah, honest question, so,
1: though. <laughs> so it was a really good question. Um, yeah. Look, I think, how did I come to write the book? Um, I come from a family of mathematicians, and I'm actually the black sheep in the family, not being a phys- physicist or mathematician. And, but, but I think what I've kind of inhaled with the air in my home is opinions are nice, but really, we need to know what the facts are. And that conventional wisdom often leads us astray. Um, and so that was really probably part of the kind of genesis of this book is that my um, co-author Kim Powell and I and our whole firm, GH Smart, uh, which they wouldn't be a book if it we weren't uh, for the firm, um, we're called on to advise CEOs, boards on helping them make really important decisions around who will be placed in the most important leadership roles and then helping those people be successful. And time and again, Kim and I and the, our whole team keep stumbling into this shocking gap between what we think we know and what the data tells you. And I'm sure you, Scott and Robert, you see this in your own practice. You know, it's, it's, in business often opportunity lies in kind of dusty corners, right? And leadership is one of those things where everyone talks about it. If you talk to any board member, we all think we know what a leader is. Yet, actually, if you look up close and personal, there's actually very little high quality, reliable data around it. And we kept stumbling over and over into really painful and costly misconceptions or or, uh, assumptions that really were dangerous and damaging to the enterprise, uh, and so we felt that we really needed to go and kind of shed the light and bring the data to the to the questions.
0: Yeah, you definitely did do that, that's for sure. And So when someone hears you know, this podcast and they're looking at the book and they may think, okay, well, I'm not aspiring to be a CEO. That's not something I want to do. Um, I think it's really not about that, right? It's more about trying to um, to look at how you can become more, ordin- and take the ordinary and become extraordinary, I think is how you describe it within the book.
1: You nailed it, Robert. Absolutely. So our vision for the book has always been learning from the best performers in business, right? And in this case, you know, we picked the CEOs because by many accounts, you look at these folks as the most achieved uh, and frankly, kind of the buck stops here type of leader. And we've always inspired for this book to be equally helpful in the boardroom and frankly, in a college dorm and everything in between um and so we've we really always seen this as well let's really look behind the scenes let's peel back the onion and look at what makes those high performers those stars if you will in the business world what really makes them effective and then translate that into lessons that could be applicable to any of us uh, and it's funny actually i was talking to a friend of mine recently and she said you know I passed around your book and someone told me it's a great parenting book because we're always thinking as parents about, well, gosh, what are the skills, what are the characteristics that we need to help our kids develop? And, you know, so because it's a, you know, fairly simple framework uh, that tends to resonate. And so, yeah, we very much intended this as a book for anyone who really aspires to be at their best.
0: I never really thought about a parenting book, by the way, as I started reading it. Neither <laughs> I... did I. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> um, I I guess you could look at the parents uh, as being, you know, a CEO of their their own company, but. Um...
1: But the last thing I would tell you, though, for the for the listeners of your podcast who are kind of mid career or even earlier, right? An important thing we found actually is that. 70% of the CEOs, so of the CEOs we interviewed, 70% of them didn't know they would become CEOs, didn't set that goal explicitly until much, much later in their career. And so to your point about, well, if, you know, most normal people don't really aspire to become CEO, I completely agree with you. And you never know.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, actually I saw one of the uh, recent uh, speeches that you did, I think it was at Wharton, and uh, you showed a photo on, on the screen of a typical CEO and kind of gave a background. And then you showed uh, a photo of a um, a garbage truck um, worker and, uh, and, and you asked the question, would you ever think that that person would become the CEO? And yet that person did become CEO. And it was just a different path and I believe you even went on to explain that the person that was at the garbage truck became the better CEO and
1: Don Slager. Yeah, Don Don is Don was a very successful CEO.
0: Yeah, and I think he's, uh, if I remember correctly, in your book, isn't he in the first couple of chapters there where you describe? In the
1: first, yeah, the story of Don Slager is kind of your your American dream story of garbage man becoming a, one of the best CEOs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I want to dive into the scientific research because you you talked about that you didn't become a physicist or a data person or whatever, but this is very analytically or quantitative in what you did within the book, and so you you based it on the scientific research and analysis of over twenty six hundred leaders that. On from a database of more than seventeen thousand CEOs and C-suite executives, that's that's a lot of knowledge and, and uh, information that's there. For anybody who knows anything about data mining, I mean, going back and and looking at that amount of data that you could probably get into. It would probably give you um, an enormous amount of, uh, or at least the ability to portray it in whatever way you want to. So you're looking at thirteen hours, thirteen thousand hours of interviews, two decades of experience between. I guess it's you and Kim, uh, and our and, whole
1: firm, frankly, and your yeah. whole
0: firm, yeah. Um, and you know, in this case, how did you and Kim obtain all of this information, and and why do you believe it's beneficial to anyone with a growth mindset?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Robert. So, so a couple of things that make this really special. Um, so, we've been told that this is the widest database on leadership and the deepest database on leadership at the same time.
2: Really. Um,
1: so, what it makes this special? A lot of leadership research, especially when it comes to in behavior of individuals, right, comes from kind of you know small data samples or really focused on public bios of maybe Fortune 500 companies, right. Our sample, because of its breadth, really covers every industry possible. It covers companies from Fortune 50 down to, you know, $10 million company or a company with 10 employees. Because what we sought to uncover, and by the way, when we embarked on the research, we didn't know that we would uncover it, right? But what we sought to uncover is sort of like leadership DNA. We really asked ourselves the question of, well, if you look at performance of these CEOs, is other some common characteristics, regardless industry, regardless this company size, that that point to higher performance, right? How did we get this data is a great, great question, because that's a very unique. So GH Smart is, a com- is an advisory firm that was founded by Jeffrey Hudson Smart. And Jeff started the firm in 1995. Um, and we've been, since 1995, called on by leading companies and leading investment firms to basically help them decide who to back, which management teams to back, who to put in the role. So all the data that the book is based on was gathered through these in-depth interviews with CEOs or with C-suite executives, where literally we walk through every kind of chapter of their career. Uh, At a minimum, we spend about four or five hours with every executive. In many cases, we did follow-up studies, we did 360 analysis, etc. And what's really important is for a reader reading this book, You're benefiting from the very same data that companies pay, you know, millions of dollars to obtain. And importantly, they make critical decisions based on the very same data. And so you're really getting a benefit of this incredible wealth of information that companies actively use in their decisions as opposed to kind of something that was just done purely academically.
0: Yeah, not anecdotally at all. So I mean, also, you you mentioned that you had the biggest database. I remember when I was going through a firm and going to an executive type of leadership team that they had that they put together of the, the top couple percent that we were going through, all kinds of um, analysis and stuff and trying to help us grow into the next level they had us take the Gallup um, survey. And um, so I, of course, having heard that name, Gallup, I had automatically assumed, okay, this is probably something that's very large and and used quite often. So Gallup is one of those things that I thought was large, but you're saying your database, at least from the C-suite and for CEOs and stuff like that, that's how it makes it larger? Or is it just larger in terms of just um, the data on leadership?
1: I think it's the depth and the depth and the rigor of the data, right? Because basically every piece of data in this database is somebody actually bet their career and the future of their business on, on accuracy uh, of the great data. Point.
0: Yeah, because I mean, if it, yeah, and, and that's the thing is that uh, decisions um, in the private sector and the military both are very similar in the point of you're having to make decisions that's going to impact somebody else's life, somebody else's career, somebody's, you know, uh, in, in many cases, so our our society tends to stereotype senior level roles and place greater emphasis on the past of people who went to Ivy League schools. And we mentioned earlier about Steve that was working as a trash collector. Uh, and so, in that case, why is it that we place so much emphasis or believe that the ideal or normal top candidate is that is is you know the the ideal person or the best person in those types of roles? And when I think of that, I think of like the Steve Jobs or the
1: Kind of large, larger than life CEOs. Yes. Like you hear, yeah, you hear about Jack Walsh, You hear about Steve Jobs. Kind of these titans yes. of the industry, right?
0: Right. And yeah. so everybody always says, oh, you know, when they're scouring, you know, through their their teams and stuff as to who's going to go in these executive roles, that's the the stereotypical mold that they're looking for. And I seem to be, I, I seem to see a lot of um, people who come across very polished. Yet they tend to focus more on um, the most simplistic things and can't make the big decisions. They, they, they struggle when a big decision gets in front of them. And uh, I think it was a Parkinson's, we did a show about that a long time ago about a Parkinson's study um, where they had a team of executives and used an example of how uh, sometimes leaders get bogged down in which they um, they had a couple of things that came forward and one of them was a, a really major deal that required a lot of deep thought and analysis. And the second thing was whether they should build a bike shed for the employee's bikes. And and they the first one passed rather quickly because nobody knew how to argue or knew how to do anything. And the second one, everybody spent an enormous amount of time talking about the bike shed, how it should be That's made. With the color. Yeah. It is scary. <laughs> and it happens every day. But those are the those people come across very polished and put together, and yet um, they don't always fit that mold.
1: Yeah, somebody said to me that, you know, in a boardroom, the length of the discussion usually is inversely proportionate to the impact of the decision at hand. Yes, <laughs> so.
0: yes. It's
2: exactly what we were talking about in the Parkinson's theory, wasn't That's it, That's what it
1: sounds like, yeah,
2: yeah. Elena, do you think the face of the modern CEO is different to but a CEO was, like Robert was just talking about, stereotypical CEOs. So maybe 10 years ago, a CEO would have been, you know, graduate, gone on to do an MBA, 10, 15 years within the industry, and then positioned into the role of CEO. Whereas modern technology now and the way business is, is, you know, the different industries that are coming out of, technology, the internet and things, where CEOs are getting younger and younger and younger and, you know, they're, they're forming companies very early, growing them super quickly. And, and for me, the face is changing of what a modern-day CEO is compared to what it used to be 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, Scott, the face of a CEO is a really good question. I, I think it's both changing. And I frankly think that up close and personal look at a leader or at a CEO probably is always a bit different than what our kind of conventional wisdom or uh, stereotype would have us believe. Uh, I think some of these aspects around age or you know diversity makeup, they're probably still pretty industry specific, right? So if you looked at technology or if you looked at the West Coast, right, between geography and, geography and um, industry, if you looked at Fortune 500 CEOs, they will probably still be a little less diverse than what we would hope and that's changing, but it's probably not changing very quickly. But as we did the analysis, some of the kind of common perceptions or some of the myths that shattered in the face of data were things like, well, so your point, you both alluded to this factor of the Ivy League, right? Um, So we actually found, interestingly, that if you look at the CEOs, only in our sample set, only 7% graduated from Ivy League undergraduate. On the flip side, 8% didn't graduate from college at all,
0: Hmm. right?
1: Hmm. Um, And so you've got kind of this you know if you assume normal distribution actually you got the two tails right Mm, the two tails are pretty much matched exactly but it's ironic right because of course in our perception we assume it's all it's all one side of the tail it's all ivy league these perfect resumes we never think about like a guy who didn't go to college or a woman who didn't go to college being kind of a natural ceo and so i think that's one example uh to this day i'm astounded how this whole notion of introversion extroversion plays out in the boardroom to this day, we had a conversation with a board where we were helping them make a decision between several CEO candidates, and the board was really torn. They said, look, you know, this individual on every dimension, they seem to really meet the bar, and you're really recommending them strongly. But my sense is that they're really introverted. So I'm really concerned about how they're going to build followership because you need to be on stage, you need to be face of the company, you need to be in Washington. And when you look at the data introversion and extroversion has nothing to do with actual success as a leader or success as a CEO. Uh, In fact, interestingly, when we we bucketed our CEOs and our analysis into those who exceeded expectations, those who met expectations, and those who underperformed, if you looked at the very top bucket, there were actually slightly more introverts there. They were overrepresented. But the big takeaway for us, not surprisingly, uh, and being an introvert myself, I guess somewhat uh, gratifyingly, uh, there's really no statistical significance to introversion and extroversion. Um, and, and so it's while it's something that socially, conventionally, we tend to attach a lot of meaning to, what you see is tremendously effective CEOs who are introverts. They just build followership differently. And you know they may be drained after that town hall, but you can train anyone to do a town hall at the end of the day, right? Um, so... So as we started to kind of peel the onion, there were a lot of factors like that. And the book lists, I don't know, I think 11 different different myths. Um, we talked about the, having a flawless resume, right? Folks that are hoping to advance are always worried about taking too much risk with their career or making a mistake. Well, you know, you've seen probably in the book, first of all, every executive, every single one of those 17,000, frankly, by now it's closer to 18,000, they've made significant mistakes in their career. In the in the analysis of CEOs, 45% of them not only made mistakes, they had huge blow-ups. Like blow-ups means getting fired or losing like $200 million worth of shareholder value. So wow. things that are really kind of, you know, pit in your stomach, you know, really kind of a big, big deal moments in their career. And frankly, what we found is 78% of them went on to be successful and it had to do more with how they dealt with their setbacks than with the nature of the setback itself. And so... Every I guess the big I'm often asked what are the big surprises from the research and frankly the biggest surprise for us was that at every corner the data flew in the face of conventional wisdom and so our biggest surprise is that there are still so many surprises in that.
0: Oh my God! You know the the question that Scott brought up a little while ago is uh, fairly interesting because I've heard recent news reports. As a matter of fact, the CEO mentioned to me uh, about this the other day, and that. Um, how Google, Ernst & Young, IBM, Apple, and others have recently stated how college education is no longer a major requirement for employment. Now, you know, the indictment on that basically is that maybe our education system has failed us because it's always been that the education at least um, provided a level of maturity for individuals and more, um, I guess, more worldly, made them more worldly and such. And so it, it's a bit of a, a negative statement, to me at least, that education is not placed as much as important, but I also have seen the pendulum swing both ways, you know, That's even in right. my own lifetime. Yeah, where I saw people who the emphasis was placed on more skills and experience and certifications, especially in the technology field. Um, and then it swung the other way. And, well, you can only go into senior leadership roles if you have a college education. That's right. Yeah, so then colleges and universities started creating degrees for technology to allow that to have happen for that uh, field. But today, technology, we're surrounded by it so much. I can certainly see this swinging back the other way for good reason. Well,
1: and also I tend to think that, you know, it's probably a bit of a law of supply and demand, right? I suspect that Google and IBM say that, not so much out of vision or kindness of their heart, but frankly, because they don't find enough workers with the right skill sets. And they're so they realize that they have to help prepare them. And they're not, I guess, they, they recognize that there are people that, you know, lots of population that won't be able to afford a college degree. And so they're starting to look beyond that. And that's that's a great thing, right? There will be different paths for, for people
0: yeah. to career success. The research revealed interesting information about the behaviors also that differentiated these high performers what are some of those and why do they stand out to you? Like, you know, the decisiveness, engagement, relentless reliability, and adaptability. And I'd love to kind of quickly go through a few of those of of why, you know, those kind of stood out.
1: Yeah. So when we embarked on this research, we very intentionally um, didn't just do the research ourselves. We partnered with the University of Chicago with Professor Steve, Ka- Steve Kaplan, who is an economics professor um, there and his team. We partnered with SAS Institute, which is a uh, SAS is one of the largest independent software companies based in North Carolina. Oh yeah, because it was cr- as much as it was important for us to be factual, it was critical for us to be objective, and that's kind of a foundational value of our firm. And so we wanted to be careful that we're not a hammer looking for a nail, and that we're engaging with really kind of the best in class experts at data analytics to bring kind of 21st century analytics and data mining. To this field of liter- leadership, and you know, not just drink our own kool aid. And so, I will be honest: when you know our research partners were cranking through the data, I was you know waiting for results with quite a lot of trepidation because, you know, I'm always wondering, oh my god, we don't really know what we will find. Maybe we'll find nothing, right? <laughs> and so, because nobody actually knew if that kind of you know unified, uh, if you will, CEO genome exists, right? Yeah. And so, we did find the four behaviors. So when we looked at performance results of CEOs, and looked at different behavioral traits of these CEOs using this this database, um, we uncovered the four behaviors that were statistically significant in uh, impacting results, ability to perform, ability to be successful. To make it easy for everyone to remember, think of the word dare, like dare to be excellent, so D-A-R-E. It's not in the book, by the way.
0: No, Um, it's not, but I'm loving this because now I'm looking at it. Yeah,
1: your (laughs) audience gets an extra. Um, But it's just an easy way to remember it. So there are four behaviors. Uh, D stands for decisiveness, as you alluded to earlier, Robert. A stands for adapt proactively. R stands for relentless reliability. And E stands for engage for impact. And these were the four behaviors, each of which had significant impact on ability to deliver strong results in the CEO role. Now, uh, and I'm dying to know, by the way, when you read about these four behaviors, how you thought, you know, that that might apply to careers of some of the military folks, and how that that might resonate, because I suspect that there's some of them that probably, you know, as someone with a military background, would really have a leg up on.
0: Yeah, actually, I thought it resonated a lot in that sense, uh, because when you think about, especially the combat arms uh, side of the the military, those within the the Marine Corps and the Army uh, specifically, or even those within special operations of the Navy and the Air Force as well, They have to make quick decisions, and and they start to realize very early on that you don't have to have all the information. You just have to have enough information to make a, a good decision. And even out here in the private sector, it should be the same way, yet too many times people labor too long on what the right decision might be. Uh, analysis
1: paralysis. Yeah, I guess ye- in the battlefield, you can't really afford analysis. No, paralysis.
0: no, not at all. And so I learned very early on in my career, not only is just a, uh, the military career, but just as a, a leader, when I started witnessing people being able to quickly decipher b- uh, between those things that were important for the day and those things that were not. And um, they'd quickly assess that and determine, okay, these are the things we're going to focus on. And that other stuff that just kind of came down through the pipeline, yeah, we may have to go out and dig a ditch, or we may have to do something that they're asking us to do, but the level of importance was placed on where it needed to be. And whereas I've seen uh, in more of the conventional Army on those that were not combat arms – um, I didn't see that type of reaction. Everything was, you know, like a fire and everything was important, or at least it had the same level of emphasis. And I don't know if you saw that same thing as well, Scott, in your your time.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, I think it comes down in, in the military. Any decision is better than no decision at all, because, you know, inevitably you need action and something to happen uh, coming from that. And, but there's so many traits that come from military and make good leaders in the civilian sector then. And within your data set uh, Elena, was there many military people within that group? Or former military. Yes, yes, it's a great question.
1: I wish I had a number for you. So there absolutely are military leaders and folks with military background in the data set. Some of it might be earlier in their careers. I I don't have the exact number for you. I can tell you anecdotally that, you know, being in the boardrooms, when leaders get picked and, and supported for promotions, military experience is always valued very, very highly. Um, and it tends to be that folks that come from the military, the transitions could be hard. And so that people always kind of wonder about how the transition into the civilian world goes, but medium and longer term, those careers really can accelerate because, you know, whether you talk about a CEO or any leader, One of the key things that matters is are you prepared to kind of when push comes to shove, are you prepared to make these tough calls Are you uh, can you be counted on? Right. Mm -hmm. And those things that I think folks that come from the military. People around them assume that they come with the experience of doing that, and often that's really the case.
0: Well, you think about relentless adaptability. Again, some of the same you know traits that you see within those, and I think that's maybe why you know within the military you see those good leaders that rise above uh, the others as well, is because they're those that. Uh, even though you may have the rank, they're the people that can quickly adapt on the fly, make the right decisions, understand that they don't have to have all the answers. or all. And, and, and I mentioned several times in the podcast, and I think I even did on the last week's and over and over again, but I, I can't say it enough. I mean, wisdom comes from people who make mistakes. So you learn from those, or you learn from watching others make mistakes along the way. And uh, so it was interesting to find through your statistical analysis that you mentioned earlier, Elena, that um, a lot, you know, what was it, 50% or 46% or something like that actually made mistakes. And so that's tremendous when you find those people who made major mistakes that could cost themselves not only their job, but company millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, but yet they were provided another opportunity.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you've picked on something that really runs as a thread through the book without us kind of really intending it practically to be so is this notion of taking risks, making mistakes. We actually talk about... um uh, in one of the chapters, there's some examples from the Navy SEALs organization. We were fortunate, our team is fortunate to, to have advised Pro Bono. Um, and there's some experience there that they share around the importance of recognizing mistakes, being able to learn from them and having this constant kind of iteration, right, as part of Uh, as part of building highly reliable, highly adaptable organizations. And so, um, yeah, we, we talk about mistakes a lot. And I think it's one of the underused assets in business, right, is being able to really learn from your mistakes. And again, what really struck us is that it wasn't really the nature of the mistake itself that seemed to really determine whether the mistake becomes a blow up that tanks your career or something that's kind of a explosion that torpedoes it forward. It really had it seemed to have had much more to do with how the leader handled the mistake and what they've learned from it than than the nature of the mistake itself.
0: So you talked about the genome aspect of this and so I wanna dive just for a second into that is did you find during the, the research and analysis that there was at least the notion that you're a born leader versus someone who became a learned leader?
1: So I love your question. Uh, And actually, we've had battles with our colleagues about even the word (laughs) genome, right? And so first, I will lead by saying that uh, we think of the genome, uh, like in the 21st century understanding of the genome, right? right, which actually suggests that our behavior has a huge impact on which genes get turned on and off how our environment and so between the environment and our habits we actually have a lot more impact on how our genetic code that is embedded expresses itself and so in the same way look i think across these four behaviors every leader we've seen and frankly even any individual we've seen at any tenure there will be some areas where they'll be naturally stronger and there'll be other areas where they have gaps or also even in the areas of strength there may be some domains where they're really effective so for example you know i'm sure Scott and Robert, you've seen plenty of leaders who are incredibly decisive when it comes to, you know, choosing a site, next site for an office or when it comes to making that acquisition. When it comes to firing their CFO or upgrading their assistant, all of a sudden this individual who was just the role model for decisiveness falls apart and nothing happens for five years. Yeah, right? I've seen it. And so the cool thing about these behaviors is that we've kind of found in our practice coaching leaders and advising them and helping them improve on these behaviors that it's really never too early, and never too late um, to hone your muscles in these behaviors. Um, And so we've done a lot of work and we share a lot of examples in the book around what are some of the practical ways that you can kind of train up your muscles in each of these areas.
0: That leads us right into the career catapult. So what are those things that you believe can actually catapult somebody's career if you said that they're a a junior or mid-level leader right at this moment and they wanna take it from a scale of one to 10 of a five up to a 10, how, how can they achieve that? How can the normal everyday person become that CEO or at least get on the path towards success?
1: So in doing the work, um, we thought, well, you know, probably at least some of the readers will be quite ambitious, right? And so we've analyzed CEOs and then we've decided to push ourselves further. And we said, okay, well, what if we look at people to your point that not only got to the top, but actually even got to the top faster. So for an average person from their first day on their first job to getting into the CEO suite, it's about 25 years, 24, 25 years. Um, it could be longer if it's a big company, it could be faster if it's a, if it's a technology company or if it's a uh, private equity owned business, etc. But by, by and large, that's the range. And so what we did is we isolated what we called career sprinters. So we isolated folks who got there faster, who got there faster than average. And then we got really nervous because then Kim and I looked at each other and we said, Yeah, no shit. What are we going to learn, right? We'll probably see some McKinsey's and BCG's and Bain's. We'll see some right. top strategy consultants. We'll see some MBA's. And what is actually going to be useful to our audience? Because we really want to find advice that anyone can actually impact, right? Can, they can take ownership of, the, of that advice. But as usually, you asked me earlier what I believe. As usually, rather than worry about what we believe, we just went, went for the data. And so we crunched the data and we found that, in fact, If you look at the sprinters, a quarter of them went to top MBA programs. There was a significant number of them that went to kind of academy companies. That's a quarter, right? 97% had undertaken one of these three career catapults. And again, we had no idea that would be the case when we embarked on the research. But again, shockingly, what was fascinating is that when you look at the folks who have advanced, ultimately, nearly all of them have made choices that actually were choices that they actively took. It wasn't something that they kind of fell into that enabled them to advance. And and those three, we've identified and isolated three kinds of catapults that were most prevalent. Right. And, and again, 97% did at least one, many of, some of them did um, two. And the catapults are, um, we, we call it a big leap, right? So it's taking on a role when somebody calls you with that promotion and, and you kind of, you know, you get a feeling in your stomach of, oh my God, can this really be happening? I'm really not ready, right? So it's something that's just a huge leap in size, scope, or maybe even in industry. Uh, so that's about a third of the, um, of the sprinters undertook a big leap. Uh, another one was uh, a big mess, right? So it's taking on that dog of a business that nobody else wants to run and there's really no fame and glory that can possibly come from it. And guess what, actually? Because nobody is really paying attention, you get an opportunity to be a mini CEO, or you get an opportunity to really hone your leadership skills under fire. There's
0: right? no, but there's place. nowhere to go but up. I mean, you're if you're there's at the no bottom, to go but
1: up. Exactly, exactly. And and look, as you know, right, many academy companies actually part of their deliberate leadership development trajectories. They will give you a dog that you really can't mess up too badly, and that will be. And they will fully expect that you may fail or you may succeed, but that's um, they intentionally expose you to that. Uh, and then the last piece we call it kind of go small to go big, right? It's uh, undertaking something that looks smaller, but ultimately again gives you an opportunity to have leave a real footprint on it and have real impact and be really really tested. The best part of these about these catapults is that, again, these are things that you can deliberately seek out and think about and undertake, right? And and you know. You don't even need to wait for the next promotion, right? You could look around and ask yourself, like, what's a messy project that, that's been lingering, that's important to the business, but nobody has taken on? Um, oh, there is an M&A situation and everyone's running away because it's so painful and messy. Why don't I volunteer to be an integration executive? And so there are ways that you can create, and we talk about this in the book. There's actually a list of things we uh, offer where you can create these catapults in your career. You don't need to sit around and wait for you know somebody to anoint you.
0: So it's not one of these things then where everybody's uh, just at the right place at the right time or guided under the right leadership that actually allowed them to get promoted. What you're saying is, is that the person actually took more action than somebody giving them the handout.
1: More action and more risk often, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's an important factor because I think a lot of people are under the misunderstanding that they have to be the right place, right time, know the right people, and have the right connections before they're ever going to move up. And your analysis just proves that totally wrong, and um, says no, you you've got to actually plan for yourself. And I think one of the things I've counseled a lot of people on because I did it myself was that um, I looked at the vision of the organization, where where that is, you know, where the strategy is, and where the organization is going. And I didn't look on the job board for my next opportunity. I looked for where the gaps and weaknesses of the organization well, was. Great for, idea. Yeah, and went to the leadership and said, hey, this is where I think I can aid you and created a job description that didn't exist. And so that's where I've actually been able to advance myself a lot within the career. Now, I had to be successful in it once I got in it and, and uh, show you know, my value to the organization. But that then catapulted me to the next level uh, because I did that once again. And that's, I got,
1: a great, that's a great example, Robert. Yeah, and it may, and it instantly makes you stand out from the crowd because, again, you're really taking ownership and you're taking ownership of enterprise success, right, and helping find your place in it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a struggle that a lot of military folks, by the way, I bring that up because um, when you make the transition, you you seem to struggle with where am I going to fit in within an organization? Well, if you look inside yourself at what are the key traits and things that you bring to an organization and find that... Or make sure through your network, while you're in the military, you're networking with people in the private sector so that you can then relay that information to them over time. And especially when you get out, you can show that value. They can create a position, a title, a role, and responsibilities because you've now proven that what you're type, talking about or describing can be very
2: beneficial to an organization.
1: Exactly. exactly. It's
2: problem solving, isn't it? You know, seeing an opportunity and coming up with a solution to, to, to solve that problem.
1: Yeah.
0: What knocked people out of it, though? Because there are some times where we all make mistakes and we get derailed. So uh, what were the five hazards that seemed to derail most people?
1: So in the book, we talk about five hazards. I will actually offer one that's most common, um, Mm. and it's completely tenure agnostic. So it doesn't matter whether you're a CEO or if you're just starting in your first job or if you're thinking about kind of your personal decisions you make. Um, So here's an interesting thing that happens often uh, when I'm called in to advise a new CEO and I ask them, so what's on your mind? What are you most worried about? The number one thing on their mind often is the board, right? Uh, Or if you translate this from a CEO to an executive or a manager in a new role, it's their boss, right? So how do I succeed? How do I excel? There's always somebody on the top, right? Who is kind of somewhat mysterious and, and you feel is really important to impress. Um, And obviously we do, you know, help them think about the board and how they engage with the board and all that. When we do analysis of CEO success and failures, while their number one concern coming in is the board, their number one mistake, regardless of tenure, is all around people, people they pick around themselves. It's all around the team they bet on. And the irony of it is, That that's the one thing they think they know how to do.
0: Sure, yeah, I'm sure they think that that's how they got there, right?
1: That's how they (laughs) got there by leading strong teams. And so, how is it possible that the one thing, and you know, in a lot of aspects in life, right? I think Warren Buffett is quoted that you know it's not what you don't know that's going to kill you; it's what you really think you do know that just ain't so, right? right. I actually don't know if it was Mark Twain or Warren Buffett, but. (laughs) Uh, it, may be, it may have been Warren Buffett quoting Mark Twain, but the point is is that there's this false security that you have to be really, really careful about that I know one when I see one, because in one way or another, we've all been picking people our whole life, right, from our spouses to, to our colleagues and to our football teams and so forth, and, you know, shockingly, it's right there that where you're going to most likely to make a mistake, and so in the book, we share some of the tips around, you know, how do you make sure that you avoid this mistake? There's actually, our founder, Jeff Smart, wrote a whole entire book that was also a bestseller called Who, I, uh, Robert, oh. when you opened this conversation, you said it's first who, then what? Yes. So now you have a whole book you can uh, you can kind of use to support that, uh, and so that entire book is complete open Kimana on our methodology for how we conduct interviews, to help companies avoid hiring mistakes because a typical executive has about a 50-50 shot at getting it right or wrong, when they hire someone, when they promote someone. If you think about that figure of 50-50, think about any business process, like I don't know a single business process where you would tolerate a 50% error rate. I mean, gosh, in the military, like-
0: That would not be good.
1: (laughs) Right? Like 5% error rate is pretty scary, right? Right. That's like real lives on the line. 50% 50% error rate in something that we all think we know how to do well, um, so that's that's the big hazard that I would caution your uh, your audience about.
0: No, I think it's a really good one because uh, in the military sometimes you're not provided the luxury of going out and picking your team. You're you actually have to acquire your team, build them, and and you know build them up to something. Um, you know special or accomplish the mission or objective at least that you're you're trying to do and the private sector as you're mentioning you reach a level at which you're able to build that team especially if you're going to be a CEO you have to hire the right executives underneath you to be the the leaders that can handle the tactical side of the day-to-day so that you can also focus a lot more on the strategic side and so I found it very interesting when you were describing this because I think I had written a note where 75% of the uh, CEOs interviewed made the painful mistake in building their team. And I thought, oh my God, that is so high. Yet I see it also like you do um, in the consulting side of what I do today in that they, they haven't made the right decisions. And it's worse yet that in some cases, if you don't build the right number threes, meaning the, the team below the leaders. Exactly. So if you start going, the CEO is one, Uh, your executives at two and your senior directors or directors at three if you at least don't have the two right you better have the three right or you're really going to be in trouble
1: yeah well and this is where we've talked about some of the areas and important behaviors where military uh, folks with military background have a leg up I think here I would probably offer a word of caution to folks with military background because and I'm curious Scott and Robert how that resonates for you a pattern that we see sometimes is that they can be very, they can set very high expectations of their team and be demanding in driving performance, but when it comes to upgrading folks and moving them out, they really struggle because they become they're very loyal to their team, and it may come from the heritage of feeling that you don't pick your team, right? You walk in and and you're and I think you know often we assume that our job as a leader is to make the most out of the team we've got. And I think you know, I, I think that really can, um, can backfire.
0: I'll speak uh, for a second, Scott, and then you can follow on because I think what I heard from that that uh, people may struggle with within the military is that we don't always have the luxury of, um, of getting rid of the people who are kind of the cancer within our organization. So you've never, um, or at least most people don't have that opportunity to show them the door. Um, you know it's a lot of paperwork or whatever the case may be but in the private sector that's a very hard decision um, that when faced with it if they haven't ever had that opportunity they're probably it sounds like very uh, reluctant to do so and I, I can
2: certainly see that happening with military. Yeah I think it comes up to choice in the military you don't often have the choice to be able to move somebody along and sometimes it's a little bit of better the devil you know as well and if you do move somebody along what are you going to get uh, as replacement Uh, and and i've seen it when i've worked my way up when i left the military and started in manufacturing at the lower levels often you don't have that choice as well you know and you've just got to put up with a team but as you uh, climb your way up the ladder you do start to get more choice and, and more ability to to pick and select a team and i guess for some people if if you're one of the sprinters and you've gone to the top very quickly. You've missed out of that learning uh, as you climb the ladder and having the ability and, and being able to build teams and be selective and make the mistakes there, you know, because as we spoke about earlier, making mistakes is a learning process. Exactly. And then if, if you go too quickly to the top, you haven't had that mm. learning process mm. and you may struggle to, to make those changes and get it right, mm. I guess.
1: Mm. That's an interesting, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I also find that when it comes to upgrading the team, for a lot of folks, it's a question of values, right? Because I think, you know, for many of us, we want to see ourselves as, you know, good, kind people. And I think there's this, uh, <laughs> one of my boys asked me, so people actually get fired? Like, do they shoot them and kill them? No. And I think, And I think, because like this word of like firing someone, it's just awful, right? And like, yeah. we don't, nobody likes to see themselves as this evil person that deprives somebody of their livelihood. The reality is, and, you know, now think about your friends that are in jobs where they're not going to be successful, right? The reality is actually, I think of it almost the opposite way, which is everyone deserves the right to be in a role where they're going to succeed. And by holding on to someone who is ultimately not going to be successful in your organization, you're not actually protecting that person, you're doing them a disservice. Now, you know, there are obviously the right ways to to do that and support the transitions, etc. But I, I do think that it's a common misconception that kind of you're, I think the the big heartedness is actually in helping somebody position themselves where they could be successful as opposed to just let them drag along in the role that they're mediocre in.
0: I can't remember what study I read, Elena, about that very topic, but that said the exact same thing, that their findings found that um, most people that were finally let go um, actually they said they recognize as one of the better things that happened to them because it catapulted their career in a different way. It taught them the thing that they needed to learn the most, or it was just a, it was a very challenging environment for them in the first place, and they were stra- uh, struggling. And then on the other side of it, the employees that were working for this individual applied that to the leader that makes that exactly. decision. Yeah, exactly. because you, you get rid of the cancer within the organization. In some cases, if you hold on to them, it's like, what are you waiting for? And when you do, it's like, thank God, it finally happened. Exactly. So I, I find that uh, very interesting. Elena, I could go on talking for like another 45 minutes, by the way, because I think <laughs> there's so many Thank you. Yeah, there's so many pieces in this book. And um, when I first heard you, it was actually on uh, Ryan Hawke's uh, The Learning Leader podcast. And when I first saw the episode and the title and everything, I thought, okay, this is another look at like Jim Collins and another way of um, analyzing businesses. And in fact, it was, but it's a different approach in terms of he looked at businesses, you looked at the people. And, and I think that he didn't leave that part out, but the way you took your analysis and broke that down and looked at you know the people who were the high potential, the people who had the growth mindset, and the people who were successful and breaking that down to its simplistic forms, like you said, it surprised you at the analysis that came out of it. I'm sure people listening to this podcast are going to be surprised by some of the things that you shared as well.
1: I certainly hope that the, the CEO next door will open doors to success for a lot of your uh, listeners.
0: Well, thank you. I hope it does too, because I think, again, it doesn't matter whether you're aspiring to be a CEO. It's just about you know the high potential and showing your value to an organization and being successful. And there are a lot of key tips and takeaways within the book. So how can they go about finding the book? Uh, where might it be available? And how can they learn more about GH Smart?
1: So uh, GH Smart is ghsmart.com. That's the easiest way to learn about our firm. Uh, and the book is really available anywhere where books are sold. So you can go on Amazon and try uh, CEO Next Door. Uh, or you can go nextdoorbook.com for the book website. But for the book, Amazon is an easy place, always.
0: <laughs> Elena, thank you again for taking so much time.
1: Robert Scott, thank you. It was a pleasure. And I really wish from the bottom of my heart, first of all, I think that's what I said in my email to you. Many thanks to each of your uh, audience members who have served this country. I know all of us, my family and I all benefit from that every day without even knowing exactly all the ways that that happens. Um, So thank you and really wishing them all a lot of success.